0: Do you ever wonder where your meat comes from? Today, over 80% of beef comes from industrialized processes, and companies don't want you to know the source. Now we have a company that cares about where your beef is coming from. They're called Crowd Cow. Visit crowdcow.com slash low-carb show to learn how they do things differently. They give you full transparency into the independent farms that they work with, and whether you're looking for quality grass-fed beef or luxurious Japanese Wagyu, Crowd Cow is the craft meat marketplace. Food transparency is the wave of the future and it gives consumers access to both flavor and choice. We no longer have to put up with CAFO beef and industrialized agriculture. It just doesn't have to be that way anymore. Again, they're called Crowd Cow and they source the best quality steaks that you can't get anywhere else in the world. Visit crowdcow.com slash low carb show and they'll give you $25 off of your first order. Be informed, know the source, eat better meat, Crowd Cow. today's featured audio is from the 2018 low carb cruise visit low to learn more about the 2019 low carb cruise leaving out on may the 31st 2019 as the 12th annual low carb cruise to the bahamas we also have another keto 101 cruise sailing out september 28th 2019, get full details at lowcarbcruiseinfo.com
2: I've got everybody on the panel here, and we've got a few questions that we're going to start with, and I'd like them to become discussions among the doctors so anybody who has questions, we'll do it after we read a few that already came to us Um, So, number one uh, does it matter how high ketone readings are? Who wants to take that? Please No (laughs)
3: <laughs> uh, no, so and I'm assuming you're talking about blood ketone levels? Yeah. Yeah, so I think uh, Michelle answered this pretty uh, nicely in his talk, that the blood ketones are 2% of all ketones that we're measuring. Breath is a little bit better with the ketonics or the level device. Um, but you have to put it into context of what you're trying to accomplish. so. You know, we fixate, it on, we fixate it on ketones because it's something that we can measure. But in terms of energy production and utilization, most of the ketones are just used by the brain. As far as all the other organs, they're going to preferentially utilize fatty acids. as their energy, so heart, uh, muscle. Interestingly enough, there are some studies that are coming out about diabetic patients, and the heart starts to actually use some of the ketones as energy as well. But in terms of should you live and die by ketone levels, I
4: would absolutely say no.
2: Anybody else? I'm
4: not quite so sure. (laughs) Um, I think for most people, yeah, that it doesn't matter. Uh, See, the early science now being done in animals, um, if you look at Tom Siegfried's work, um, he has a certain um, ketone level that he tries to achieve. And in early studies, of course, it's not to the human level, so I agree with what John said, don't worry about it yet, but coming down the road, um, you may get better effects if you're trying to treat Alzheimer's or cancer, having a different ketone level. See so what's happened since, gosh, the last five years is solid uh, funded researchers in the animal world, I think at the end of their careers, seeing that they didn't fix Alzheimer's and they didn't fix uh, cancer, are shifting over and saying, oh, what is this keto thing? Maybe we can help out. And so uh, some studies suggest I was going over this with a patient in my clinic who knew all about Tom Seafried and we pulled up his stuff, and he's got a protocol, and I said, well, you know, I really don't know if it's going to be that important in humans. And Steve Finney uh, teaches that... Um, the rat or uh, mice metabolism is very different than humans, and even in well in terms of ketones especially because of the brain size. So even if it's true in those paradigms, it might not be true in uh, the human metabolism. So I agree with you, John. No, it <laughs> yeah. no, doesn't matter what the ketone level is.
2: And I actually have a follow-up question. And uh, on the measurement of ketones, do you guys have any preference or feelings about the difference, and importance, and accuracy of breath versus urine versus uh, blood? In the bulk of
5: my patient population, and in my personal experience, uh, I don't. I don't really advocate measuring ketones. I think if you're eating a good whole food ketogenic diet, it becomes unnecessary. Uh Nisha and I both started out in the beginning playing around with that, and I quickly realized that if I'm eating the diet, and I know I'm eating the diet, that eating on a stick or pricking my finger is completely unnecessary. That's just my personal opinion.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that for the most part. I think if you're doing it for a therapeutic uh, reason, epileptic, uh, or you're doing it as an adjunct for chemotherapy for cancer patients, then I think it's beneficial to check a lot of people, I will actually recommend the urine uh, ketones initially just because it's a cheap way to figure out if you're actually starting to produce ketones. Obviously, as you start utilizing them, you know you get a lot of false uh, negatives. So then I tell people to stop checking. But you know, in general, if you're doing it for weight loss, I mean, I personally check. I'm like Dave. I check three times a day, but I'm also OCD about it. Um, and I'll check blood and breath because I want to know Am I actually utilizing those ketones that I'm
6: producing?
7: And I think from a weight loss experience, the the people that I've encountered, especially myself, personally speaking, two years ago when I started this, when I weighed 70 pounds more than I do today, it was reassuring to be able to just urinate on an inexpensive stick and reassure myself that I was staying on uh, track, because at first it's very difficult to Eat to satiety. If you've had a lifelong obesity problem, your satiety signaling, you just don't know. That food is such a comfort to you. So to be able to urinate on the stick, and if you had a little bit too much of something in it, and the stick is not purple anymore. So for us, for me, especially if the scale stopped moving, it was a nice reassurance that, okay, I've got ketones there. I just need to, to stay the course and maybe tweak what I'm putting in. Uh, so if they, there's just different points of view on from a medical perspective versus someone who's
4: battle obesity their entire life. Based to the... Uh, yeah, yeah, class. Um, the science is just getting started, even comparing breath, blood, and urine at the same time. Wouldn't that be interesting? So, well, there was a company developing a uh, breath monitor that came to our clinic. We have, gosh, 50 to 60 people in ketosis in some degree. Uh, it's funny, she went to other clinics, and they said they're using it ketogenic diet, but Dr. Westman, no one's in ketosis. Ah, so the clinic oh, says yeah. you're ketogenic, but the people weren't actually in ketosis. But not all my patients are, but many of them are. So anyway, they come to, to use their machine to compare their breath, the breath machine, new machine, to the blood and the urine. And then we got them to throw in a little extra to do a study about a cheat meal. What happens if you have hundred, you know, 75 grams of carbs what happens to the breath, blood, and urine ketones? And in two women who were told to you know go on their first diet when they were ten years old by their mom, you know, they were knocked out of ketosis for two weeks. Breath, blood, and urine. And and actually my kind of gestalt is the breath, blood, and urine sort of track together. Remember I'm an MD, not a PhD. I don't obsess about these small differences, which you know are important, but they, I don't I just don't do that. Uh, But uh, the other study we did was the, um, hey, would you like to get together in the um, uh, hotel conference room and have some drinks and see what happens to our ketones. (laughs) Um, So this study, funny, we didn't have any trouble recruiting people. They came in the morning and had to show they were in ketosis. Then they went out for the day and they came in the afternoon and and signed off that someone else was going to drive them or they would stay in the hotel. It's all IRB approval stuff. And in these five people, the uh, breath alcohol went over the legal limit in everyone, and no one really had total elimination of ketones. So when I hear, and we checked for you know, two hours after the drinks, and it was, uh, I was talking to the investigator. You know, five minutes before the study, and she said, how much are we having people drink? I said, I don't know, I thought you were coming up with it. And so we, we came up with the research protocol right there, and it was two alcoholic shots of vodka over 15 minutes. So in everyone, it made a, everyone was legal limit of, of inebriation, um, and no one was knocked out of ketosis. So it's very interesting to hear people definitively say, oh, alcohol knocked you out of ketosis, when I think there's a lot of individual variation. Usually we're at that standpoint or point where um, if it happened to me that way, then I teach it that way. When, as we've learned through this whole conference, there's a lot of individual variability. But so I'm, I, I use ketones uh, in the urine mainly because in our population, that's all they can afford. Uh, no one really wants to check their blood. Um, but it's neat to have the breath. They all seem to hang together pretty well.
2: So would you all agree that that flirting with ketosis is effective and that maybe the obsessive monitoring of ketone levels is not necessarily productive and if we just aim for a ketogenic diet, like you said, it may not be as necessary whether we are in or not in ketosis? I think that's a very
5: fair statement for the average person uh, without a seizure disorder uh, who's not a type 1 diabetic, who is not battling cancer. Mm -hmm. I think that's an entirely fair statement. That it's, you know, just constant monitoring is unnecessary, and you know, for some people that can get in your head. And you can really start to obsess about the numbers and why the heck this number is not doing what I want it to do, and it can actually shift your concentration off what you should be focusing on, which is the food. And you're, start, you're really obsessing about this number and this test, and I don't think that's really productive for the average person. Yeah.
3: It's not a challenge, don't worry. Um, the only thing I would say is if you are checking blood levels, don't fixate on the number. So if you're in you know, therapeutic ketosis, I see a lot of people are, you know, it's almost like a competition. My ketone levels are three. You know, how big is yours? Kind of competition. So if you're in your therapeutic range, then I think that's uh, what I would focus on is anything.
8: What I find for folks uh, who want to get into ketosis, I think initially it's really helpful to have that as a guideline. Am I in ketosis? Am I not in ketosis? Which foods throw me out? Which foods keep me in? But after a while you get to know your body and you get to know your diet, and you probably can lay off for a while, but maybe in a year or so, if you think that you introduce some new things in your diet, and you really want to stay in a certain level of ketosis. It might be helpful to revisit those numbers again and just see if something's crept into your diet that
2: I have a few more but why don't we take some from the audience and then we'll come back to the ones we already have Go Do you want to come up and Or I can repeat it if you want I can just repeat it so you know okay. everybody.
6: Yeah, well, hi guys um, So a question for you, wondering if you've seen Negative effects of ketosis
8: And I'm talking about kind of on an individual Basis so when I get Say I get to three
6: I actually get palpitations I feel extremely anxious, restless I um, I just overall don't feel well.
8: Three a blood ketones.
4: Blood ketones, yeah. yeah my, per- my first um, response would be, is there adequate sodium? And, in fact that's kind of, in any symptom that I hear is I wonder if they've had enough salt. Yeah. And and, uh, and you can Not say you course. need more water, but you need salt to hold on to your water and all that. So I've heard, I think I'm learning through this cruise, that what we want to say is electrolytes. Yeah. Well, what we really <laughs> mean is salt. So <laughs> but I actually- it, it's less yeah. daunting, or you know, it's not as uh, much outside of paradigm. So watch your electrolytes. And um, you no, know, well the ketosis is interesting. I've seen ketone levels of seven, and I've seen blood sugar levels of 50, and people feel fine. And, um, and then you don't need the same level of sugar, blood sugar, if blood glucose specifically, if you have ketones around, as Volek. Jeff Volek says, you know, you don't need them. You're running out of ketones and fat. Uh, so, I don't know. What do you think about those ketone levels?
3: Yeah, I mean, and I'm assuming this is uh, endogenous ketones. You're not taking them, right? But You're not endogenous. taking them?
6: And I do use salt, so I do do, like, I do, like, Dr. Einfeld, uh, okay. like, salt water. Um, I'm talking with an magnesium. And no
3: MCT oils. No,
6: nope, I actually don't. I just didn't need the extra fat.
3: Yeah, when you get to a very very high level, I mean, obviously we're not talking about diabetic ketoacidosis, but still, you can get a mild metabolic acidosis, which can give you some of those symptoms that you're describing. But I I do agree with Doctor Westman that it's probably a water electrolyte issue, specifically magnesium as well. Um, So if that's happening to you, I mean, try to dial down so you're not hitting those high levels. Calories drinking. If people
6: are getting the three point on our ketones and feel
2: like that, maybe their calories are something. I don't know. Yes. About salt, does it matter sea salt? Uh, iodized sea salt? Himalayan ion salt? Does, does the matter? type of salt matter? Himalayan, pink, iodized, not
5: iodized. That's a valid question. Uh, I always recommend an unprocessed uh, ancient sea salt just because of the, the, the micronutrients and other minerals that are in there. But if you've ever actually looked at the, the research, there's not a lot of those minerals, but there are some. And so I think still it's, it's basically you would much prefer what's in that than what's actually added to the Umbrella Girl salt. Uh, right because there are things added to that and that's processed in ways that I promise you, you don't you don't want any part of and so uh, salt like uh, you know Redmond's real salt which I have no financial interest in uh, but that's what we like to use because I just it's from an ancient sea so it's not still an active sea that's polluted this seas under 30 yards of, of clay and it's mined and it's been dead for you know I don't even know how many thousand years so there's no there's no toxic waste from Japan or China or anywhere else in that in that sea, right? You know, nobody's dumped any crap in that sea. And so I think that you're going to get a, a better quality product from that, whereas if you're getting salt from a, a, an active sea or umbrella girl salt, you're getting things you don't want.
4: Yes, so, uh, Dan. Oh, yeah, so 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 sure so so I've also learned another phrase, and that is to have the best salt that you're able to get in your local community It doesn't have to be that, but it will still work. In 1863, when William Banting did this, oh, rats, he might have had Himalayan sea salt. (laughs) (laughs) So it it can work without those additives, uh, and uh, so it's not a I just see people getting hung up on, uh, you know, well it's not Himalayan sea salt, so I should just eat the whole burger. So just eat (laughs) the whole (laughs) burger. And I would, my question to the panel about the salt
7: is, you know, the iodized, you know, salt, they added iodine because of all the goiter issues 30, 40 years ago. What do you guys think of those people that are extremely going to only use our Himalayan are they in danger of being low in their iodine or is their diet supplementing that?
8: So. Excellent question. You know, um, it used to be even breads had iodine because they would actually clean the, the bread making equipment. They'd wash it down with iodine. So. And our soils used to have higher levels of iodine as well, and they've become depleted, so we are at risk. And uh, then there was a study, I think it was several years ago, that said 40% of the iodized salt didn't have the amount of iodine it even boasted. So that put us at at further risk. Um, I would say, I so agree with the panel here about getting a good natural source of uh, salt uh, with the least amount of contamination but the thing to know is that a lot of these, these salts do not have uh, additional iodine. And so you just have to be sure to get some kind of iodine in your, uh, in your food, in your diet, in your supplements,
2: whatever it takes. i I'd like to add to that. There's a huge controversy in the natural products and, and functional medicine community about iodine supplementation and everybody, the general public has learned that we need iodine for the thyroid and people are supplementing with iron. It's very controversial. And here's just one thing to think about. Over 95%, it might even be 98%, of low thyroid in America is Hashimoto's. People with Hashimoto's do terrible with iodine supplementation. Uh, I interviewed Dr. Isabella Wentz, who's known as the thyroid pharmacist. She wrote a best-selling book on Hashimoto's and Protocol. She's kind of my go-to expert. And she advised very strongly against iodine supplementation because if you don't know if you have Hashimoto's, you could be making it worse.
8: So, what salts did you have if you have Hashimoto's? That I don't know. I don't know.
2: What, what are natural sources of iodine? Sea, tar, seaweed, seaweed,
9: seaweed, seaweed,
5: seafood, kelp, sea vegetables, anything from the ocean. Yeah. Okay, another question? Yes.
6: Okay.
8: We came here basically
6: because of my seizures, and I have one question. Every time I hear about seizures, I hear about seizures for children, you know, uh, the child, kiddos, child seizures. There's any hope for adults, I think that's mercy, there's any hope for grown-ups?
5: Well, I think the reason that you keep hearing that is because uh, there's, there hasn't been a lot of research done using a ketogenic diet in adults to control seizures. But I, I, let me go out on a limb here. I know that's rare. I don't normally do that.
6: <laughs>
5: but I, I predict that over the next five to ten years, as people actually start to research this, yeah. that we're going to find that the ketogenic diet helps any seizure disorder. Is it going to cure it? No. But it's going it's to decrease the frequency and the severity. And I think that's going to be true of any neurological condition Probably almost without exception, that the ketogenic diet is going to be the ideal diet for that person. But now they may still have to take one or two or three medications, but they'll need less medication if they're eating a ketogenic diet. Whereas if they're eating the stupid American diet, they'll probably need more medication because everything's going to be more inflamed, which leads to the compounding of the inflammation as you go through the body systems. That's just my opinion. Now, there's no research proving that yet, but I think we'll see that. That's my prediction.
3: So there, yeah. And one of the things I'm excited about is they're actually starting to do quite a bit of research specifically on exogenous ketones and ketones' effect on brain metabolism and seizure, traumatic brain injury, uh, cancers like GBMs. So I think probably in the next two, three years, you will see a lot of information coming out specifically about not just children, but adults. Um, And if you think about it, all those diseases, especially seizures and traumatic brain injuries are having a a dysfunctional metabolism in the brain. And so the ketogenic diet or ketones are much more efficient fuel sources and creating less inflammation for the brain. So I think you will get an answer pretty soon.
4: If there was one doctor for you to see, it's Dr. Eric Kossoff, K O S S O F F. If he can't see you, his team can see you at Johns Hopkins. And they're the ones who've done the research on the modified Atkins diet for adult epilepsy.
8: I'd like to add that from my reading, from a behavioral standpoint, being a psychiatrist. <laughs> Uh, It was really interesting because um, some of the literature that I read said, well, it probably works in adults, but they are not as compliant, or as a child is compliant because they're embedded in the family, right? Uh, I think we can be very uh, compliant with motivation. I wish there was more cultural support for ketogenic diet. I think as that starts to come around, hopefully in the future, uh, we'll see more cultural support. But that seems to be the biggest argument
5: that I've read. But until you can get in to see the recommended doctor, I think you'd be rather wise to eat a ketogenic diet. Dana.
6: Yeah. I uh, I have ketonics. I don't bother. I don't think you're both I have ketones, And I have found that I will always blow a green. if I'm in mild ketosis. But I will only blow a yellow or a red if I am both deliberately fat-loaded and restricting fat. Now... Should I just assume that you know you're blowing mild ketones, so it's okay you're burning fat, or should I be taking that as a signal that I ought to be baffling more and restricting calories? You, you want to answer? That? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that Come where...
9: over. This is kind of a big pet peeve to me. As somebody who takes more blood tests than anybody else in this room, maybe more than all of you combined. I can tell you that what you're capturing in the blood is what is in transit and not yet in use. So that's what's that? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about blowing. Or I'm sorry. I thought you were
6: talking
9: about the. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. But even so, even so, the problem is, is when you're talking about an energy, Let's change. Let's change it. Would we get excited about having lots of glucose in our blood, since that means that we should have lots of energy?
10: Right?
9: No, no. We, would we get really excited about lots of triglycerides? Since that means we have lots of fat that we can make use of. No, that's why it doesn't surprise me when we see, particularly with DHB, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is the same thing with uh, acetone that you got a higher usage. Therefore, there's less that's actually expelled, or that's actually being provided in the blood as well. Right. So until we can actually get nano cameras inside the mitochondria and actually see the usage, we really won't know. And so without question, obviously, I love to track data a lot, and I love to obsess about a lot of the data that I can track, but I'm aware that the metabolism is an extremely complex machine. And in that sense, we have to take, we, we have to be mindful of actual uptake. And that's why, as was already said by the panel before, I mean, you can get the biggest of experts. They're going to keep coming around to the same thing. The best meter that you have, you were already built inside with, and that's from your brain to how you feel to your body. So how much you're you're being on a ketogenic diet, you're going to know that most from there, you want to see how that sounds and feels, you know, 24-7. So, sorry.
4: Yeah, so that's using that into a clinical recommendation. If the outcome you're trying to achieve is weight loss, don't follow the ketone meter, follow the scale. And if you're having ketones in the breath, blood, urine, and the weight's not going down, you're having too many calories. So that, I get that all the time. People confuse being in ketosis, fat burning, with accessing your fat store and losing your fat weight. No, it's not the same thing. It's actually automatically, most people reduce their caloric intake for a long time, and that's the beauty of it, without hunger. But at some point, you might have to reckon with doing something like a fat fast, where it's mostly fat, limited calories. These are the advanced technique tricks that we doctors know, and you have to come see us to learn. <laughs>
2: I actually have a follow up question for the panel about that, <coughs> and it has to do with exogenous ketones, a very controversial subject. Oh, okay. oh,
1: oh, yeah. yes. okay.
2: Just in time for this
1: question.
2: So, so, let me see if I can. Interpret. So, my understanding of ketosis is that the value comes from your restriction of carbohydrates and therefore the body having to be forced into a fat burning metabolism where you make ketones. So I am confused, and maybe other people are confused, is what the possible benefit would be from taking exogenous ketones when there's plenty of glucose around in your bloodstream. I see people literally on moderate carbohydrate diets taking these ketone supplements and thinking that they're they're gonna be some benefit, and I'd like to know what you guys think about
7: that. So I'll I'll start with that one. So I agree that exogenous ketones are gonna keep you from having to release your fat stores. There's a saying it's a rhyme. Do you wanna get you wanna take the fat from your glass or your, (laughs) right? So we want to access, well, glass or your, okay. So so in other words, no, do you want, if you're looking to lose weight, do you want to take in your, you want to use up the fat from your glass or your fat from your, (laughs) make me say that word. Anyway, so um, i Exogenous ketones and weight loss to me is a, now transition. I think who was it that said transitioning in? I think it was Amy. Here, I will say I have a personal experience. It's an N of one with my nephew, my sister's son, who has had so much social anxiety his entire life. If someone um, was coming over to change the car, it's an intelligent man, top secret clearance, works at a, a major military facility, but won't meet your eyes. It's, it's just, it, it just. Can't do anything. She sort of forced him when she heard about the neuro benefits and how if you have a broken glucose pathway, and I'm not talking about this scientifically, I'm talking about this from my heart, and she started him on some exogenous ketones, and within how many days, say six, six days, he was meeting people's eyes, he was saying, Mom, I've been set free, I will never not take these. So for weight loss, I get it, but there are, I think, certain things that we can elucidate through research and we can out where is, because uh, so it just hurts me when I, I, I wanted to say something earlier, because and it is an end
10: of one, but it was a lifetime for him. Yeah. And he truly, people at work are like, oh my God, he's looking at me, he's talking to
2: me. But was he on a different diet as well? did no, not change his so, so what it you're saying is thing. just taking the exogenous ketones, even though there's glucose. Right. It would not things? change it because we've been doing What that would that be the keep... mechanism by which that would work? More ketones.
4: Um, so this is the group in Tampa. A couple of groups there now, where they, I saw research being done. This is now the Metabolic and Nutrition, uh, metabolic and nutrition Therapeutics Conference that's happening every year. Next uh, January, February, we will be in LA. And what they did in this study is they gave people with Parkinson's with this, you know, this resting tremor. gave It didn't matter what the, their diet; they were carb eaters, carb eaters, carb burners, not adapted to fat burning and there was a transient improvement of the tremor. Wow. Then it came back.
7: Him. He has oh, to so, take two doses a day, and while well, during his work week, he has to take two doses a day. So he takes one Debbie in the morning and one mid-afternoon, right? and then when he gets home he doesn't take any more. So it allows him to be very functional at work.
4: So that's for social anxiety yes. in that right. one case, yeah. Right. And in, in this case, all, 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 um, all I'm trying to express is that we don't really we don't know. know, of course, my position has been to, I don't want people to just be buying it willy-nilly without any research behind it. So I'm still cautious. And remember, I'm speaking from requiring that level of evidence that would be required for any drug, for, for drug approval. And it's good to know that that research is going on. But again, I would say if you're trying to lose weight, your calories or fat should come from your glass. But would the,
2: ketones, would the ketones be used if the body still had enough glucose in the system?
11: Yeah, yeah, they
7: would still be used. Dr.
3: Dom's group
4: <laughs> in South Florida is doing some work on the brain right. preferential. Well, and actually, just I'm not. Remember, I'm not poo pooing this, right? So I'm an author on a study that just came out last week in this large pediatric journal called Pediatrics, where a Facebook group of people using Type One, uh, using LCHF keto for Type One diabetes was surveyed, and it got published in a major medical journal. And so what would be really cool is to get a Facebook group or a Instagram or whatever, a website of social anxiety folks. You get more than one, you get two, you get 10, you get 20. This group had 2,000 members and 10% filled out the survey. So there were over 200 people that had dramatic effects for type 1 diabetes. And so maybe that'll be true for social anxiety.
0: Are you looking for a way to track your sleep that is accurate and affordable? Then check out biohackingring.com and use the coupon code JIMMY at checkout for $50 off. Now, you've often heard me discussing my sleep biohacking, quantifying how much deep sleep as well as REM sleep and other stages of sleep that I'm getting. And we now have a very cool and fashionable technology that's out there for tracking this data. Again, it's at biohackingring.com. Use the coupon code Jimmy, J-I-M-M-Y at checkout, you'll get $50 off of this cutting edge device I absolutely love this ring and I couldn't imagine not using it to look in on my sleep BiohackingRing.com is the website Coupon code Jimmy for $50 off at checkout and you need to check it out and it gives you lots of data on sleep, activity heart rate variability, heart rate and more BiohackingRing.com Have you been interested in trying the new cutting-edge technology of exogenous ketones, but didn't know where to get started? Let me introduce you to Perfect Keto. Visit perfectketo.com slash Jimmy and use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 15% off your order. Perfect Keto was created by a functional medicine clinician who developed this unique formula for maximum efficacy. It's great tasting and the most affordable exogenous ketone supplement, you can find that raises blood ketone levels up to 1.5 millimolar to help increase mental focus, boost your energy, and commence fat burning. It does not contain any soy, dairy, gluten, artificial sweeteners, binding agents, or anything that doesn't directly improve your health. The synergistic power of a low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat, ketogenic diet with Perfect Keto exogenous ketones will have your body running optimally. Perfect Keto is available in delicious chocolate sea salt and peaches and cream flavors. Each serving comes with 11.38 grams of high quality beta-hydroxybutyrate for maximum ketone boosting while adding in magnesium, potassium, cocoa, stevia, and vitamin C for extra micronutrition. Again, try Perfect Keto for yourself at Perfect Keto com slash Jimmy and be sure to use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get fifteen percent off your order. Perfect keto. Uh,
11: my question is for Dr. Ted, but I'd be happy if you know anyone wants to take it. There was a roundtable you did that showed up on YouTube uh, where you said that. If you prescribe patients medicine, you'll actually walk away with more money than if you just talk to them about diet exercise, which sort of implies that if your patients reverse their diabetes and they're taking off their meds, then the doctors make less money. I'm just wondering if you could just sort of expound on that. Maybe I have that wrong. Maybe I have that right. Could you just uh, add on to that? And then if anyone else wants to jump in on that topic, that'd be great to... Uh, yeah, sure. This is like a, the sad reality. Um, basically, modern medicine is a tentacle of the pharmaceutical industry at this point. And every doctor up here will tell you that if you see a patient for a couple minutes and do not prescribe a medication, it's a level 3 visit, and you make like, you know, $15, $20, something like that. So if I see you for a uh, cold or a brain or something, and I don't prescribe a drug, it's a level 3 visit. If I talk to you for 30 seconds and gave you a prescription for like a statin or a blood pressure drug, it's automatically a level four code. And I literally make twice as much money. I'm almost twice, like basically twice, like literally cash in my pocket. If I spend no time with you and write you a prescription for anything, I instantly get double the code. Uh, like, like I would have to sit there and talk to you for 25, 25. minutes. 25 minutes of diet and education counseling to get the same amount of money, and I can just spend a minute with someone and write for some Libitor or something and just instantly make that money. It's, it's pretty much sick and wrong. I mean, it really is disturbing. It's I think much. if everybody knew that, uh, if everybody knew that that's how it worked, they would be really pissed at doctors. That's why it's just our secret. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, or... It's on audio. <laughs> but,
4: but did the doctors make that system? <laughs>
12: They influenced
11: yeah. it. I'm sure. Maybe, maybe. I honestly, I don't
12: know American how much the doctors are
11: involved. I yeah, think
5: American all the guidelines
11: come from industry physicians who have ties to industry, so I'm not really sure. But just the flip side of that, you know, there's not as many
3: primary care doctors who are independent practice. So when Ted says that, a lot of times it's big corporations that now have basically put doctors on salaries.
5: So the doctor themselves is not taking that money, it's the big corporations. Exactly right, and uh, but Ted's absolutely right. In 30 minutes, I can make the, exa- in 30 seconds, I can make the exact same amount of money writing one prescription. If they have two chronic conditions and I write a prescription, that's two. That's a 214 level visit. Or I can spend 25 minutes counseling about diet, lifestyle, ketogenics, and make the same money I could have made in 30 seconds, and that's absolutely true. And it makes me sick, but but it was, it's the system I grew up in, so I have to I have to deal with it until I can affect enough of you guys until we break the system, basically, because it won't work anymore because there's not enough sick people to make it work. Can
12: we multiply that out for an hour? I think uh, one of the one of the other potential way to make this a little bit better is to reduce the amount of time it takes for doctors to talk to their patients about low-carb or dietary interventions and so on. And I think it would be really great to, we're currently working on the Low Carb for doctors, sort of site and and materials that you can hand out and videos that you can show your patients and so on. So feel free to talk to me if you have any tips about what exactly that should uh, contain. But I think a very important thing would be if you wouldn't have to spend 25 minutes talking to your patient, maybe you could just spend two minutes and get the same effect that might make it more interesting for many doctors. So the Obesity Medicine Association is a group of
4: 2,000 doctors treating obesity and diabetes with tools like LCHF, keto, drugs, things like that. I have a totally obesity medicine practice uh, within an insurance-based system. I only do level three, level fours, and I just keep the number, the amount of time per person less than 25 minutes, so I can build a level three and uh, do it 10, 15 minutes and have a sufficient salary that an internal medicine doctor would require to be happy, uh, competitive to other fields. So there are ways to do it. Not a whole lot of doctors do it. The Obesity Medicine Association is one place to learn about it and to be taught about it uh, or find an obesity medicine doctor as well. And that's obesitymedicineassociation.com. Now I'll take off my past president hat and go back to keto. So you can do keto and, and get paid in an insurance-based system, but you, you pretty much have to do, that's all you do because you can make it quick and you're seeing people and follow-up. The return visits become the, uh, the volume business.
11: Oh, I was just going to say that I, I am in the second biggest uh, medical multi-specialty medical group in Seattle. It's about four or 500 doctors. And we're still on straight production, where I literally do make half as much cash if I don't prescribe a drug to patients. So even in the big, uh, big multi-specialty groups that are insurance-driven, it's still like basically if you prescribe, you make more money. Um, over here? Yeah. First, and
2: then we'll go to
8: So initially for Dr. Eric, uh, there was a recent JAMA article that uh, talked about prospective studies that were they were getting the patients for it, for equal caloric diets for keto versus high-carb. And um, for one thing, doesn't that partly defeat the satiety aspect? And are there any preliminary results with regard to that study? Which one are
4: you referring to? Uh, more detail. Is that the Stanford group in JAMA was this spring? It Garver was in the study. spring, yeah. yeah so the, the results are out, I mean... Because
6: your name was in the article
4: um,
6: with, with regard to being somebody who advocated ketogenic.
4: Okay, well, I think I'll just speak to that journal article that was a study out of Stanford looking at different levels of carbohydrates. And in their methodology, they said, uh, so the way they did the study was, we'll let you eat as much fat as you think you can uh, to sustain it. And so now they did it like symmetrically, they would say to you in the low carb group, you can have as many carbs as you want as long as you think you can can sustain it. So they started at 20 grams a day, and after three months, you know how many carbs people were eating? about 30% of their calories were all carbs and they started at the 10%. So it wasn't a keto study. And that was, uh, it didn't really help push the knowledge into the keto world. And uh, the headlines though got the, you know, low carb, low fat, no difference. Um, and that was a little disappointing. But I, that's the study you were referring to. It just wasn't informative. Um, and then we were, we were um, our papers are cited in the, the reference list. Uh, I don't remember me being mentioned, unless you're thinking of a, of a um, news article, um, and I, I just keep saying that there's as much um, evidence for a keto diet as there is for a prescription drug, the same level of evidence. I, I will tell you, you can, with the confidence of an FDA-approved drug, you do this diet, it's going to work, and it's going to be safe, and it'll be effective.
8: This article specifically mentioned, like a twenty million dollar study, where they were, uh, in order to get into the study, you had to
6: lose fifteen percent of your weight, and
8: then
2: you
6: arbitrarily get put into a high carb or a high fat equal
4: caloric. I don't remember the university. Okay, well, there were also a couple studies at Harvard where the equal (laughs) caloric. Well, you know, this all goes back even to the animal research, where a friend of mine was saying. Hey, what's going on? These low carb rats are losing weight, even though they're eucaloric. So eucaloric means they're being fed the same amount of calories outside the body uh, as you measure them. So they knew early on, at least those who were doing the studies, that you had to feed the keto mice more to maintain the same weight. So if you're trying to keep the calories the same, the weight loss is gonna be different. But if you want to keep the weight the same, the calories are going to have to be different. It doesn't compute to the traditionally trained uh, nutritional researcher. Um, so uh, the best studies that are done so far is that, yeah, your metabolic rate will go down when you lose weight, but it will go down less if you use a low carb keto diet, about 200 calories less. And then another big study: the is there a metabolic advantage? Can you eat more and? And lose the same amount of weight, and yeah, it's about hundred calories a day metabolic advantage for a keto diet, which translates to a year about ten pounds. So it's not. Um, this was the is a calorie is a calorie study, and it finally came out, and there is a small little advantage, or ten pounds a year is a lot public health wise if you use a keto diet and not a low fat diet for weight loss. So I think those are the big, uh, more methodologically uh, controlled studies that I'm aware of.
2: Also, I'd like to add, in a lot of these studies, at least the ones I started looking at by, back in 2002, they would compare weight loss. That would be the metric they looked at. And Some of these studies would say, no difference, keto versus high-carb. Buried in that data are all these metabolic measures that improved of so the headlines on CNN, no difference between low carb. You have to look more deeply than just the metric of weight loss. You see triglycerides drop like a rock. You see a better ratio in cholesterol. You see particle size changes. There's a lot of differences under the hood that don't show up if you're only looking at that one metric. So be careful in accepting headlines from CNN and other places that say no difference. They did this with organic foods a lot. There were these huge things that made headlines. No difference between organic and non-organic. They look at the amount of vitamin A and vitamin C. But we don't eat organic foods because they have more nutrition. We eat them because they don't have pesticides, fungicides, and all the pe- all the other toxins that are found in non-organic foods. So don't look at just the metric that they want to show you. Look at the ones under the hood because those are some very important ones as well. Please.
12: Yeah, I just want to re-emphasize that even though there are a number of studies showing no clear difference between low carbon and low-fat, there are also over 30 randomized controlled trials showing more significantly, more weight loss with low-carb, there are still not a single study showing the opposite. You know, GoFET has never won a comparison. The best they do is a draw. That's exactly the best they true. do in a draw is a 100%. draw. And thirty-one studies, randomized controlled trials show a win for low-carb. So that's the overall picture. Then We can argue about a specific study all day long, but... The big picture is that low carb it is winning these comparisons left and right. Um, I promised. Who was over here? You were, yes, sorry. My question was uh,
2: Indeed.
7: to Dr. Ted because it was. Okay. My question was for Dr. Ted because I wanted to follow up with the whole money making thing. That was a big surprise to me.
11: <laughs>
7: if I go see you and you hand me a prescription for the tour. <laughs> And I don't, yeah, don't go you fill know. it. You, you don't. No problem. Uh, I fill uh, it. If I don't fill your prescription, you still you lose the money or no? no, no? They don't try okay.
2: They're not tracking that.
6: I just want to so appreciate. I should take the
2: script. <laughs> I'm Throw it away. Yeah, fill <laughs> yeah. oh, <laughs> it. I refuse the script, but my
6: doctor loses money
5: that way. No, he still makes <laughs> his own.
3: Don't worry
5: about your doctor. Hopefully there's no doctors prescribing drugs just to make money, but honestly, I think you probably
11: have it's, it's, like, Honestly, I hate that crap. Like, literally, all day long, I'm just trying to get people off every single drug I possibly can. you. The The first thing I do is like, what can we get you off of, let's just stop, you know, most of this crap. And so I never prescribe drugs to try to up-code people, and I just think that's disgusting, and sometimes I'm embarrassed for just the whole medical professional, I mean profession. It really is just a tentacle of the pharmaceutical industry, and it's just kind of gross. Honestly, I don't like it. It Like, luckily, I work for a non-profit hospital, um, Virginia Mason Medical Center, and we've outlawed pharmaceutical <coughs> reps. I've never seen a drug rep in 14 years of working with. So. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have the and the lunches and uh, crap they bring in. We don't have any of that stuff. We, we just <laughs> don't even let them stuff. on the program. <laughs> yeah, so this is
5: getting a little into medical practice, and you guys, but it seems like you may be interested in this. So actually, it's not if a doctor prescribes a medication that he can bump his visit from a two and three to a two and four. It's that he made a decision about a prescription medication, and so you can actually stopping a medication is that same level of care. You can actually do for that, and then also deciding not to prescribe medication. You got a document in your notes, and I know this because I'm my own guy. I'm i I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a, a MD of one. In my clinic and if I don't pay the bills then the, the place shuts down and so and then I'm not about prescribing a medication for everybody that walks in the door so it's actually medical decision making so this is a, that's a lot of detail for you guys but just so you know your doctor doesn't have to prescribe you a medication if he documents properly he can document that the decision was made to stop a prescription medication that is the same level of complexity and he can still bill a two-and-four for that
6: yeah.
9: okay. Actually, I think it's kind of inspiring for us to hear from you guys as doctors when the turning point was for you on low-carb. I already know a couple of the stories like Ted's, but it'd be interesting to just hear a brief one from each of you if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, everybody knows mine already. You know, I'm in South
11: Carolina, um, not far from where Jimmy lives. I did my residency in Greenville, and it was, it was the diabetes capital of the country at the, at the time. And I, I had this guy come in who'd read the Atkins book and lost 30 pounds and his fletcher was normal. And I just couldn't believe it. So I just like researched the heck out of it. And that was, you know, 20 years ago. And here I am.
7: I'm not a doctor, I don't diagnose, treat, or cure, or prescribe, or any of that stuff. But my turning point was when my sister sent me. Um, Sarah Hallberg's TED talk where she's in the blue pants about reversing diabetes. Maybe maybe we've been treating type two diabetes wrong. And then of course I found Dr. Westman and and pretty much I feel like I'm like walking in tall cotton right now. So it's <laughs> not But it, it for me it was that one. It just made it made so much sense that if we've been treating type two diabetes that that incorrectly and my A one C was creeping up to six point one. I was headed there, so it was time to change. So that was my trip.
4: Is walking in tall cotton a good thing? It's
7: a very good thing. Oh, that's a
4: compliment.
6: It's a compliment.
4: (laughs) So I saw two patients of mine did the Atkins diet. I was skeptical, and after eight years of clinical research and publishing the papers and peer-reviewed journals, I was ready to listen to Dr. Atkins, and he slipped on the ice and died, 2003. And so then after another five years of clinical research at a group at Duke University uh, with funded research, and my colleague, Will Yancey, is still studying the diet with VA funding, veteran, Veterans Affairs funding. Um, we opened a clinic, so looking back, it was after eight years of clinical research, after I saw my two patients who did the Atkins diet and um, saw had to see the research for me, uh, and then also needed the... Uh, I guess the external validation that it was more than just these people or a book or a doctor, uh, that's how I got onto it. So my epiphany
5: was when I just woke up one day and I was a fat, miserable, metabolically sick doctor who was having to daily go into exam rooms with patients and proceed to uh, educate them on how to eat and live. And you can see if you have any common sense about you, you can see how that's not a fun place to be. And so I had to, I had to fix that. And so I fixed it uh, starting with a, a paleo, then moving to low by fat, then ultimately to keto, and then now for the last three months, carnivore. But, but that's kind of been my natural progression is I could not be the doctor who walked in the room and told you you needed to lose weight when it looked like my water was about to break in any minute? <laughs>
6: um,
8: I have a, a long illness story that I won't go into. I still have some dystonia, which is why my head moved. But I think it was around the time that I was about to give up sugar. I'd read Good Calories, Bad Calories. And in my office comes this woman with a child on a leash. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist as well as an adult psychiatrist. And this is a three-year-old who is so hyperactive that she jumps out of a window and heads toward the freeway because she wants to go to Walmart to buy a princess outfit. I mean, this, this little girl was extremely hyperactive. And when she came into my room, she was in every drawer. She was just so, so difficult to control. I didn't know what to do for her, but after reading Good Calories and Bad Calories, I was pretty sure that I, didn't, I I was going to get rid of cereal. So I told this desperate mom, I said, you know, I think here's what we're going to do. We're going to start her on bacon and eggs. We're going to give her meats and vegetables during the day. And I knew this was extreme. I didn't want to put her on an industrial medication. I didn't want to put her on Risperdal and antipsychotic. I didn't want to put her on any ADD mints. I was hoping to buy some time. I said, keep her on the leash but let's go ahead and, and, and try this. And then I thought, well, her iron's probably low. We'll check her iron. We'll check a few things. Uh, two weeks, one to two weeks later, this woman comes back down the hall, and she's holding her child's hand, and she has tears in her eyes, and she sits down, and she says, I can read with my child. Then. And I thought, there is something to this. I had better get a grip and figure this one out. And uh, it was probably one of the most satisfying cases I've
3: ever had. So my story is um, about 13 years ago, um, I used to look like what Ted looks like now. I was uh, ripped and... and, um, No, true story. I was a semi-competitive triathlete, uh, runner, exercised like crazy. Um, I was a medical student, so I thought I knew everything there was to know about health. Um, and then we had to do some blood work to see kind of uh, based on a study what our metabolic status was. And I was pre-diabetic. Um, my triglycerides were in the 200s and my blood pressure was 150 or something elevated where you know, how could this be? And my diet was, I thought, very healthy. So I didn't eat any fast food, no junk food, mostly uh, carbohydrates, a little bit of fish as protein, and no fat whatsoever. Um, And so for me, that was an eye-opening experience. And at the time, there wasn't much information out there in terms of, you know, keto. There was Atkins, so I started reading about Atkins, and I started trying and diving into the research. and from there on, it's just been a transformation where um, once you kind of get into the keto world and see the, the benefits, not only from you know, the metabolic standpoint, but um, any of the doctors here can tell you, you know, the amount of work you have to do and the amount of studying you have to do. You know, my brain wasn't sharp. I was always hypoglycemic after a meal. I felt horrible. And I figured, well, I'm just tired because I'm a medical student. And then that didn't get better as I got older. It got worse. Um, and I don't have those experiences anymore based on the way that I eat.
12: Yeah, so I, I told my story in my presentation the other day, but uh, just, just briefly, I mean, uh, back in 20, 2002, a uh, couple of years after I, I finished um, med school, I was really afraid of fast back then. Uh, I mean, that's what I was taught in med school. That's like the, we had one week of nutrition training. And all I remember, basically, is that there are vitamins, and then that fat is bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I I learned. But then in 2002, I I read a couple of books, uh, and then I got onto the early writings of uh, Gary Taubes, and I got really interested in this stuff, just totally contradicted what I'd learned in in med school, but then at the same time, it made total sense based on what I had learned. So I thought, you know, why are we not taught about this? Could this be right? Could everybody else in the world, like 99% of every expert be wrong? So I tried this myself, uh, read a lot of science. My friends and, and family tried it and it seemed to work for everybody. It made perfect sense. I started treating my patients. And wow, you know, suddenly instead of, you know, uh, charging for prescribing drugs, I could charge for de-prescribing drugs, actually. We don't do that in Sweden, but but I could have, and it was transformational, really fantastic, and haven't looked back since.
1: Living La vida Low Carb, talking about a low carb diet, uh-huh. getting your body healthy, and ain't no doubt about it, yeah, it's really about ketosis, a ketogenic life, yeah, a real time indicator for ketosis called ketonics, and it messes your breath for ketones, are you burning fat, uh-huh. it's the first of its kind, all my ketonians, where you at, where you at? I'm just here to let you know, wanna look and feel incredible, we living vida Low Carb, get your body healthy and live long, Hey. Keep my fats high high, and my carbs low. Need my glucose down right now, pronto. Check my ketones, look at the stats, yo. With Ketonics, now I'm in the burning fat zone. Ketonics, we burning fat, yeah, we on it, yeah. yeah. With Ketonics, I'm burning fat and I'm on it, yeah. yeah. Living La Vida, low carb, I do this every day. If you want to burn that fat, it ain't no other way, yeah. Go to ketonics.co, and for my international followers, it's ketonics.com, Woo!
0: Good news, low-carb, ketogenic, real food fans. A real good foods company is now in all U.S. Walmart stores. They have enchiladas, poppers, cauliflower crust pizzas, mini pizza bites, and the chicken crust pizzas in 3,500 Walmart stores. Real Good Foods pizzas are grain-free, gluten-free, and of course, low-carb, high-fat ketogenic. This is Real Food, and now it's available at your local Walmart. It exclusive offers from Real Good Foods by texting RGF to 474747. And be sure to visit RealGoodFoods.com to learn more about Real Good Foods' ketogenic line of products. Real Good Foods.
10: I am a type 2 diabetic and found keto about um, three years ago, but low carb before that, and I have been off medication for about six and a half years. I don't really consider... Oh, thank you. Um, I don't consider myself cured from it, because I still have some weight to lose, and I know if I eat the wrong foods, my blood sugar goes sky high, so to me, I don't feel like I'm fully functioning properly. But I have a good friend who has done some extensive fasting that is a type of 2 diabetic. And um, she's lost a chunk of weight, and she's more at a more normal weight right now, and has sort of pushed a little bit just to test her uh, blood sugar levels um, now that she's lost this weight. And she's not having blood sugar issues. Like she's eating more carbs than she should occasionally just to check where her numbers are. And what my question is, is I've heard a theory that I don't know much about, but I wonder if there's any truth to it that some people are saying that there is such a thing as our fatty pancreas and that if you lose enough uh, body weight, especially here, and this is where I carry all my weight, um, that you can actually release some of the internal fat out of your pancreas and have it more functional and is that true? Or is it just something I heard and it's just weird?
5: Okay, I'll go first.
10: <laughs> so
5: I actually have a video on my YouTube channel called fatty pancreas, and it's, it's actually a thing and Typically by the time you have fat deposition in your pancreas, it can only be a few ounces But you're definitely a type 2 diabetic. When you have that, that's the first thing. Uh, And so the the progression is visceral fat, fatty liver, then finally fatty pancreas. That's kind of what it looks like to me is the progression of metabolic disease. But when you start to eat a ketogenic diet or do some intermittent fasting, it, it follows the exact reverse pattern. Because the most dangerous fat of those three is the fat in your pancreas. And I actually commented in my video, there's a, I was, when I was doing research for it, I watched a radiologist doing an ultrasound of the abdomen, and he comments, he was an Indian doctor, and he's like, oh, and you see here some streaking of, of fat in the pancreas. That's pretty common. That doesn't mean anything, but uh, you see that all the time. And I was like, what the
6: hell? <laughs> what?
5: But literally, he said that, and that's still probably on YouTube if you search for that. But yeah, fatty pancreas is a definite thing. It's very dangerous to, to have fatty streaking in your pancreas. But when you start this, that's the very first fat your body's going to get rid of, in my opinion. And uh, I've actually seen that on ultrasounds before, that it kind of follows that progression as they get metabolically more healthy. Uh, And so, yeah, definitely it is a thing, but that's the first thing to go. Because you guys got to remember, our body's very wise, very intelligent. It's much smarter than the average doctor. And so it, it's going to get rid of the most dangerous thing first when you give it the opportunity by, by, by stopping the slow poison that you've been putting in your body. Then it's able to actually detox without actually using the product, and it just it starts to get rid of the fat from the, the most dangerous places first.
4: So fatty pancreas, fatty, fatty liver... So I've come to the point where I'll listen politely and just say, yeah, that gets better, too. <laughs> so that's the short
2: <laughs> Carol, did you have a question? Yeah, go okay. ahead.
8: In my pursuit of getting ripped and jacked, um, <laughs> uh, not really. I just want a healthy body weight and reduce my insulin some more. Um, I would like to add some... Uh, exercise, or more specific, some weight training that would be appropriate for me with the exercise limitations and activity limitations that I have with the residual um, pseudo-aneurysm from the dissection to my vertebral artery, which is a bunch of fancy doctor words for you guys that are... Basically, I've got a little bulge in one of the arteries in my brain that I have to be really careful with, and so I can't do any lift with weight training. I'm thinking about some body weight exercises, and I'm curious, um, Spreading that out throughout the day so it's not too intense any one one time. Um, is that going to be effective or helpful? Uh, thinking of, of squats, a few squats here and there, maybe some planks. Um, anyone else have
5: any other ideas or suggestions of helping maintain body muscle? <laughs> so you said the A word, and so every MD up here is going to say you need to follow up with your doctor. Yeah. Because you said yeah. the anger isn't work, and we don't, yeah. And so, but. The only advice I would give you is don't hold your breath okay. while you're doing any of these exercises or any of these movements because that's just going to increase the intra-abdominal and the, the vascular pressure when you do that. Don't do that. And I, I, But otherwise, you need to see your doctor. You
12: need to see your doctor.
4: <laughs> you need
12: to
11: see your doctor. <laughs> Generally speaking, if you have any fragility issue that you know, would be concerning, you just want uh, lighter weights higher reps, so you might want to do an easier variation and way more reps instead of just like trying to max out on what one, one move. so like lighter weight, higher reps in general. Uh,
2: Anna. Yep. Next time I go to the doctor, I'd like to have a list of tests
6: to ask for, and a place to go to know how to evaluate them, because the doctor won't know, he won't give you any information. Plus, is there any other tests that the doctor wants to give that I should actually look into if somebody knows where to get them books or both places. Everybody get
5: out your pen. Yes. Get ready. Okay. Um, you ready? You start one start test. Sure. we're just gonna <laughs> go down the list and tell you every test you need.
11: Uh, okay, I used to like do all this crazy functional medicine crap and order all these ridiculous tests, and I have gotten to the point where I realized that 99% of these tests are completely worthless and non-value-added and never changed my advice, which is like more exercise, steak and eggs, eat real food. Um, so, so now the amount of testing I do is extremely low. But like, you know, you don't need a fasting insulin level because you're waist circumference tracks almost one to one with fasting insulin perfectly so it's just like ridiculous like i measure your waist circumference if it's going down your fasting insulin level is going down so i would forget about all the insulin stuff It's expensive and not terribly value added the only thing i check is uh, fasting glucose a1c a boring cheap ordinary fasting lipid panel, and I'm mostly looking at triglyceride to HDL ratio, or total cholesterol to HDL ratio, and then I just do a basic panel that looks at liver, kidneys, thyroid, electrolytes, blood sugar, and that's pretty much it for most people. I mean, it's super dumb and basic, and your average doctor is going to do it anyway. I do throw in an A1C on everyone, because 52% of all Americans are pre-diabetic or diabetic, so everyone gets an A1C. Uh, and that one I do like. But yeah, it's basically fasting lipids, A1C, thyroid, a comprehensive metabolic panel with liver, kidneys, blood sugar, electrolytes, and uh, that's about it. Ted, do you always order a particle test? Never. I I don't like them. Why? I'll tell you why. So the the only point of an NMR profile is to tell you in big red letters that your particles are too high and you need a stat. This is the only point to NMR. It's like holy crap, look at your particle count. It's two thousand. Uh, you should be understand. I, I am I'm basically sick of NMR level profiles. I try to people want them and I do wonder <coughs> them, but I try to talk them out of it because it's not value
4: added. It's not it's really not so So if someone came to me for a first visit, I would I would do all those same tests and nothing more. Um, the Heal Clinic, and, but you have to be in Durham, North Carolina. The Heal Clinics, we started in order to scale up to make available not only the treatment of medical conditions, but also non-medical conditions. So you could get access to a evaluation through HealClinics.com as long as it was just looking at the test. Now, I do think um, a second opinion on the lipids might be in order. A lot of people will come to me to just say, look at my lipid panel, do I really need to go on the statin? that my other doctor, uh, and I'll bless them, and say, no, you don't need the statin. Um, the only time I relent is that if it's secondary prevention, the overwhelming area, uh, the overwhelming opinion of doctors in my area of the country uh, is that if you've had heart disease before, you have to be on a statin. And I would be perceived way out of the mainstream and uh, in my area, so I, that's the. Only time I'd still recommend it, but most people are recommended to be put on it uh, when they're young, they're healthy, they've had heart disease, and just want to be uh, have the lipid panel looked at again, and that could be done at HealClinics.com. So I completely agree with Ted about the, the particle size, the NMR
5: lipid profile. When it first came out, I wanted so badly for it to be meaningful because it was such a sexy-looking test. All these numbers, and I was like, oh, boom, this is it right here. <laughs> and so I'll never check just a lipid, pro, you know, lipid panel again, but then the more I looked at it, the more I, I researched the more I decided, yeah, that's all it's for, is just to say, oh, yeah, but you do actually meet criteria for a statin, where otherwise with the, the lipid panel, you would not. Uh, and so the testing that I would order, if you were 35 to 40, pretty healthy, or maybe having some mild fatigue, and you just wanted a good, complete panel of work that we're talking about? Now if you have a specific symptom or a specific set of signs, then obviously we're gonna fine tune this because that's what we're supposed to be doing. But if you just wanted a good comprehensive lab testing, I would check a complete thyroid panel and you can find that entire list on a website called Stop the Thyroid Madness. Anybody heard of that? Great website. If, you're, if you think you have a thyroid issue, you need to check out that website. I would check a complete metabolic panel I would check a complete blood count with differential. I would check a magnesium. I would check phosphorus. I would check a hemoglobin a one I would, uh, And I love it that you're on to the waist to height. I love that because that, that is such a powerful thing that you can do at home for free. The what? The waist to, to height oh. ratio. You can do that with a tailor's tape at home for $0. And if that is point, yeah. above point .5, you are insulin resistant by definition, okay? And so that's a hugely valuable test that you can do for free. But with that being said, I, I go ahead and check a C-peptide and a fasting insulin because that gives me a, a heads-up early look at your insulin metabolism. Way before many of my patients' A1C is actually one-tenth of a point elevated, their C-peptide's already going up and their fasting insulin's already going up. And that can give me a, a, a up to a five-year head start to say, hey, Bubba, You need to put down the donuts because here it comes. That's the train whistle blowing, right? And that means get off the damn tracks, is what that means. And so, with those two tests, many, many times I can find somebody who's at the very beginning stages of insulin resistance before they're just, frankly, type 2 diabetic. Okay, and so then, uh, where were we? Okay, so we're gonna check, uh, the complete metabolic panel checks most of the liver labs. I would also add a GGT to that as well. I would check, uh, usually your gender hormones, whether you're male or female, I would check those just to, if nothing more, just to give you a baseline. So as you go through your life, you would know where you used to be. A urinalysis and, um, yeah, that's a good. That's a good list. Now that's going to cost you some money. At my lab in Tennessee, and it's not anything special. about my, my lab. I have. I do so much lab work that I have a lab tech. Lab provides me with a, a phlebotomist. and so I've got a sweetheart deal with them, and so I can get all that done for under one hundred fifty dollars if you're paying cash. And so you just doctors just have to ask. And so I call Lab and I said, "Look, you know, I'd be happy to use Quest." <laughs> that's the other major, that's the yeah. other major re- reference lab right and I said I don't, I don't, I don't care I don't, I don't love you any more than I love them so what kind of deal can you give me and magically they were able to give me like 90% off all these labs if I had a cash bank patient which many of my people are either too poor or they're too wealthy, and they don't want it. They want to get what they want ordered because they, they're like us. They know what they're doing, and so yeah, you can actually get these labs very inexpensively if you know the right doctor, or in some of the major metropolitan areas, you can go to like any lab test now. And there's several others. Even LabCorp has some standalone, and I don't think that's legal in all states, but in many states, you can just go and say, "I want this, 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 and this checked." They can check it. Any yeah. other labs you guys would add?
8: Uh, I, I can tell you about what I do for psychiatry. I'm going to pass
3: it over for now. Yeah, no, I would agree with everything that has been said already. So, we had talked uh, earlier in the uh, convention about, you know, we have almost a dual kind of healthcare system where with, with food, you know, we were talking about, you know, panda massage meat and, and buying all these very expensive products. But then how does the rest of the country really uh, achieve the same result with no, no money? And the same thing happens with healthcare and with lab checks. So a lot of times those labs are checked based on what people can afford. Um, and the way that healthcare uh, insurance is going, you know, your deductible is going up, you're not getting as much coverage. So a lot of times those labs are out of pocket. Um, so with my patient clientele, I check a lot of Uh, labs because I like labs and it helps me kind of direct uh, treatment of care. But if you're just doing basic labs, of all that was just mentioned, I would say the two most important would be the fasting glucose and the triglyceride. If you had those two, I think that would give you a tremendous amount of benefit may maybe the HDL as well.
12: Yeah, so I agree with uh, Ted in particular. I think the minimalism is, is good. Lots of tests are being taken for no particular good reason. that do not really change the way what, what you're actually going to do. Uh, that said, I kind of like uh, fasting insulin or a peptide, even if it tracks fairly closely to waist circumference. Uh, uh, at least some patients, uh, or even me, could listen more to the insulin level than a, a waist circumference. It seems more credible somehow. More scientific. more scientific, yeah. Even though it's pretty much the same, the same thing, uh, so yeah, I agree. <coughs> I so.
8: um, in psychiatry, I don't do a lot of. Well, I do actually a lot more metabolic work than I'm putting on. But uh, when I really suspect that someone has a metabolic problem, I'm I'm going to go for Joseph Kraft's work trying to get a three-hour oral glucose tolerance test with insulin and track the two together. His patterns are fairly clear. I get a lot of uh, very positive uh, and very informative results out of that. I generally don't do a magnesium, although I think magnesium is very important for blood sugar control, uh, mostly because it's really hard to get an accurate magnesium. The blood magnesium, uh, by the time it's gone low... uh, It's gotten too low to really adequately bathe tissues like the heart and brain, and and the body knows this, so it conserves magnesium. Even RBC magnesium can miss uh, 40% of people who are low in magnesium. So I'll generally just ask questions like, do you get headaches, especially migraine headaches? Do you have bruxes? Do you grind your teeth? Do you have tightness in your shoulders? Uh, Do you have uh, constipation? Do you have cramps in your feet and legs? Do you have tremors? And so those kinds of questions will usually tease out the magnesium issue. I also get B12 and B folate. I really want to know what people's status is. I have a much higher, uh, uh, which I say my threshold for B12 is 550, which is higher than what the lab says is low. Uh, And also I'm very attentive to folate. If if any of that's low, I'll get a homocysteine and kind of check out where that's going. Um, The other I get is vitamin D. Uh vitamin D is not always, yeah, it's very <laughs> important. And uh, let's see, I'm probably forgetting something, but those are I'll get a, a triglyceride HDL ratio if I suspect uh, insulin resistance as well. Although I have to say, the three-hour OGT with OGTT oral glucose tolerance test with insulin is
2: very revealing. Johnny, tell them to get about it D25. Oh yeah, oh 25. 25 I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. There are some old-fashioned doctors who still give the old time. It's useless we yeah, want OH. I, I want to push back just a little bit on the particle test and see what you guys say to this. Um, you guys are already on the right side, so it probably doesn't add much to your clinical picture. I can't count the number of people who come up to me. Workshops, socially, dinner, maybe a hundred people a year who say, my doctor wants to me on a statin because my total cholesterol is 201. Those people, I say, get the particle test or get another doctor. And I, I would argue that treating, and as many, many doctors do, uh, high cholesterol based on a total or even an LDL and HDL, which are considered to be very old-fashioned way of measuring it, um, you've got to give them something to fight back with. You've got to tell them, you're not even measuring it in the 21st century What's the argument against the particle test for those people?
5: Well, what I would say to that person is if your doctor wanted to start doing a statin for a total cholesterol of any number, then your doctor's stupid. Because we we all know that total cholesterol is irrelevant as far as uh, cardiac risk. That's been known for several years. So that would be the end of the conversation. Your doctor's done. Find a new doctor. Right. You're welcome.
0: But I
2: would argue the same things to LDL, LDL A, and LDL B yeah, very very totally different. Yeah. So I
5: so, so want for to know me that personally. I don't think the any more lipid profile helps. It doesn't. It's not going to change it's my. Not change you to absolutely. Right. But, but maybe for another doctor, it might protect a patient from a statin, But I think Ted's also right. It's going to expose a, a whole other population of patients to the statin risk. Because if, if your other particles aren't right, then you get a
2: statin, even know your LDL might not have been that bad. Well, what about the fact that there's research showing saturated fat changes the particle distribution? So you might have a particle test there, put them on a keto diet, they come back however many weeks later, their LDLB has dropped right. like a rock. That's some nice evidence. That well, I, care about, going- I care
5: about that just as much as I care about if I put them on a keto diet and their LDL goes up. I don't care about that either.
9: Because it's irrelevant. I've, never, I've never known it to work with any doctor. Whether you're particle A or B, if they see that you're at 1,800, 2,000 particles, they're going to flip out anyway. Okay.
4: So I guess what we're talking about is if another doctor, someone else, takes the test, and then we look at it for someone. Right. That's yeah. what we're talking well, about. You yeah, didn't gonna order protect, it. So
5: I'm not going
4: to Well, let me just go back. Yeah. Back in the old days, when we didn't have the LDL particle. Right? <clears throat> so we didn't have it. Everyone thought LDL was LDL. back. Right. And then these wacko scientists, I was one of them, decided we need to do the LDL particles as well. And lo and behold, it helped a lot because most people got the light and fluffy LDLs. This is, I'm saying the same thing in other terms. And some people had the small LDL. Well, then the medical mainstream looked at the LDLPs, LDL particles, and their consensus is that's the most important thing. And then, then they use a the threshold for statins, and it's into. So, but the, the bigger picture of it helping to show, to communicate to the mainstream lipid people, <laughs> lipid doctors, that actually there's heterogeneity, there's a, a differences among the LDLs. There's a good LDL, there's a bad LDL. Yeah, there's a good LDL in it, but then you get into the, no, not all large LDL is good, and, all, and so why even measure it is our point, but if you're faced with looking at it, and I have, and I've looked at people who are of keto for 10 years, and they have high LDLPs, they have high LDLs, and it's, so it's not a perfect test. No. And so if you're looking for the perfect test to say that you're not going to, oh, what's up? what are we talking about? We're talking about vascular disease. There's no disease of high cholesterol, these are risks and and thought to be the reason that you might get a stroke or a heart disease. So get those things measured, Is what I've come to is don't just do these particles in there, get the vascular test. There's a company, There's several companies that go around in the dark of night into the fellowship halls of churches and synagogues and, and they set up a vascular ultrasound and they'll do the test for you for about $150. Life scan, Life scan is in our area. Yeah. but So get that done, and that's what we're trying to prevent. And my, One of my aha moments was I had a family friend who went to the hospital and had a, a stress test that was abnormal, and, but he had a heart catheterization. He had no coronary artery disease. It was a false positive treadmill test. So he left the hospital and they told him to go on a low fat diet to prevent heart disease that he didn't have. So, so we're not treating cholesterol, we're treating vascular disease. But our medical system won't do those tests for you because it would break the bank and all, all yada yada. So that's why in the dark of night, you can get your vascular system <laughs> checked. Uh, and, and I've had it done with these companies, they're, they're good. Uh, and anyway, so that, that's why my discussion has gone beyond cholesterol. It's to do you have the disease itself?
2: Um,
5: I have I have a question, Josh. yes I have a question uh, for the MDs on the panel, uh, and I think a lot of you guys. This is starting to get on your radars. You've heard about this, and you're like, "Yeah, do well, I need that or not?" Because and that's the coronary artery calcium tool. Mm-hmm. I want I want to know everybody's take on that. You can get it now for about a hundred, hundred and fifty bucks at your local hospital, and uh, most of the time, insurance won't pay for it. But more and more, they are starting to because the American. Uh, College of Cardiology, they they finally had to say, well, yeah, I guess it's kind of useful. But I want to know what you guys, do you guys recommend it? Do you order it? What do you think about it? Yeah, it's funny. Dave and I were talking about this earlier.
3: So Let's say you get it, and you get a number, and you've been on keto for two, three years. You don't know what that number means, right? Right. Are you going up or down? Yeah, you have no idea. So the caveat to that, I would say, is if you are going to do it, do it before you start keto diet, so you have a baseline. Then you can at least track something, but in terms of whether or not that's going to change your clinical management, you
12: don't know what that number means. Well,
3: that's too late for all of us. Yeah, sorry. zero? Oh, if it's zero? you're around keto.
12: So I think yeah. the, the most interesting point uh, to okay. possibly take that test is if you have a scary cholesterol number, if your doctor wants you to go on a, a statin, you could do that test, and if it's a zero, then you know... You don't have the disease, and there is no need for medication. That's the one point where I think it's interesting. Oh, I have to tell you an anecdotal story about that, to just
8: say how hard it is to get yeah, people to change their Oh, so sorry. Yeah. oh, I just wanted to actually ask uh, the panel, because what I read about the calcium score is that it's measuring stable calcium, but not the unstable plaques that might cause trouble. Is that true?
4: Yeah, it's true. And in the clinical trials using statins that are improving heart disease, the calcium score can get worse, even though the disease is getting better. So it's not a perfect tool. I'm still, I don't in my daily practice recommend it because of the radiation. And I know it's small, and you can explain away. It's like being in an airplane for X hours and all that. But, you know, I guess in my world, I had a grandfather who was a dentist, who lived till he was 50 because they use radiation that was on a post so I overestimate maybe the risk of radiation uh, and you can get the vascular ultrasound without any radiation
11: it's not the same test but it's very close um I love this test for people who are really thin and healthy um, and you know it's going to be zero but <laughs> their cholesterol is 400 and they're just like awake at night we're in they're gonna drop dead. I'm like, dude, you have to get a CD brain health for It's going to be a zero, and then you can walk back into your doctor's office and just throw your lab report in the trash. And you'd be like, who cares? It'll okay,
2: the that's the story I was going to tell. So I have a friend who is 68 years old, not a pound overweight, exercises every day, has zero risk factors on any level, and has 300 cholesterol, And her doctor is insistent. He's not going to treat her if she won't go on a step. And that's one of the people I was talking about was saying take the part with this so they make a deal she's gonna have the calcium scan, which is really all we're trying to measure right if it's really an endpoint it comes back with zero the doctor said I don't care you got to go on a statin or I'm not treating you. so don't think that they are that malleable by simply showing facts and data yeah.
9: yes oh there's a lot of stuff here about heart diseases um, I read that there's a lot of correlation between sleep apnea and heart disease. No one asked for a sleep apnea test. You think that's significant?
4: I'll just say that gets better too.
9: I
5: like that. Most people's sleep apnea does improve as you lose weight on any diet. And so it's probably going to get better, but you're absolutely right. It is an independent risk factor for coronary artery disease. And I do order sleep studies in my my office. the um, regional hospital in the next county over has a sleep lab, and so yeah, I order those all the time. And I think it, I think it is meaningful, but then you have to understand: anytime you order a test, you're gonna have to do something with the result. And so, if if somebody is like, "Oh yeah, you've got severe sleep apnea," there's only one treatment for that, and that's CPAP. Right? You get to be Darth Vader every night for the rest of your life. And so, a lot of people are like, "Dude, I'm not wearing that crap." Okay, and if that's their answer, I don't even get the sleep study because what am I going to do with the result, right? And so I always ask patients, if you came back with the sleep apnea, would you wear this thing? And they're like, no, I don't even
4: know where the tips. In defense of the treatment, it, it can make you feel awake in a day. I mean, it can be really, really remarkable. So I really like the newer technology where it actually shows you how many apneas you have, how many times you didn't breathe that night. And so you just follow them getting better, and when they're zero 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 zero, you go back to the sleep lab and get another one, or tell them to dial it down. And so during the weight loss process, the sleep apnea gets better.
8: Many times, by the time someone has sleep apnea, there is a chance that they've actually had some nerve damage to uh, the soft palate and some of the soft structures in the back of the throat. The other thing is there are many causes of sleep apnea, and sometimes like it's a narrowing of uh, the airway and the person may even have trouble when they're running. That might be a usual thing for them. The other thing is interestingly enough there was a study of I think it was over 700 psychiatric patients and it turned out something like 74 percent of them had sleep apnea. It's, it's figured that perhaps one in three in the general population of men and one in six women uh, has it. And a lot of the people uh, on the psychiatric unit actually who've been through the psychiatric unit actually it did not look like people who would have had sleep apnea. So, so it's, um, it's kind of an interesting thing and it certainly is a, a life changer for a lot of my patients. Uh, like many members of the panel here, I definitely
2: refer my patients out for sleep studies. I wanna bring up a question that um, is for me the Achilles heel of the ketogenic guide, and I'd just like to hear how you all deal with it. And that is the lack of fiber. And especially with what we know now about the microbiome and its relationship to obesity, how do you uh, deal with, with patients who are not getting enough fiber for the microbiome to produce, to work on the short chain fatty acids and do all the wonderful things that it's supposed
12: to do to keep us healthy? You're going to start. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, we we'll see what other people say, but I'm not completely convinced that uh, the microbiome is all that it's cracked up to be these days. Mm-hmm. Sort of, uh, we don't really have the studies, I think, yet. But sure, I mean, I'm certainly positive to fiber. I don't think there's any point in, in reducing fiber on a ketogenic diet, so eat plenty of vegetables. Do you advocate fiber supplements, soluble fiber supplements? I don't,
11: no. You don't?
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. Why is
3: As far as supplements? As yeah. far as fiber, yeah, as far no, as I, getting I, I the optimal get, amount. Well, I think you should get your fiber from you know, vegetable sources, um, greens. You know, A lot of my patients, I incorporate intermittent fasting, and so you can increase the amount of carbohydrates and get the fiber sources if you're not eating all that. You're basically in ketosis, and then when you eat, you actually eat a real food. Um, and I, I really have... I don't want to say never because you should never say never, but I've I yet to find somebody who has a very difficult time with a ketogenic diet and gut issues like that if they're doing it properly, if they're it's eating real point. food. If they're doing kind of the marketed
2: packaged foods, then yeah, I think I, I, they have more issues with that. I would find it very difficult to figure out how somebody can get between 25 and 38 grams of fiber just from vegetables. I mean, I guess it's possible, but let yeah. me use not
6: Um,
8: As you may have seen in the uh, ape comparison, the other primates uh, versus humans, uh, we are not big-time vegetation eaters, and in fact, uh, in winter, Native Americans were definitely in ketosis, and were eating mainly animals. Uh, Also, the Inuit uh, demonstrated that you don't need fiber to be able to pastoral. And uh, in my experience, in my practice, probably the number one thing that I can do for my patients who are complaining of constipation is make sure that they have adequate, bioavailable magnesium. And that actually helps. If you think of your uh, uh, calcium as uh, tensing a muscle, magnesium relaxes, and you need both mechanisms to be able to move food through your GI system I've had patients who actually heard their stomachs growl for the first time in forever after they started taking magnesium. It's because they almost had a, a, a gut that was not moving, and it was because of, a, of this deficiency. So I'm more inclined to give magnesium than to offer fiber. I just
3: wanted to say one thing. So I have three little children, and they're pretty much all keto and I'm probably going broke with how many diapers
5: I have
4: to buy.
5: (laughs) (laughs) So let me answer this like this, Johnny. For the last 50 years, we've all known without any doubt that that saturated fat was bad for us and that we needed to cut down on our salt and that we needed to eat lots of fiber. We've all known these three things were fat, right? Well, I think one of the beautiful things about the, the, the ketogenic way of eating explosion, this, this movement, is that everything's back on the table. now. We get to look at everything again and go, okay, so that cholesterol theory of heart disease, that was crap. So <laughs> I wonder what else that we may have been mistaken about. And I predict that we'll see in coming years that the, the fiber, you've got to have this much fiber or you have, have to have fiber or you'll die. Or you will never poop again or whatever. <laughs> I just think that I think that's been overstated, and overplayed. It's like, oh, you have to drink a gallon and a half of water a day. It's one of those things. That's my prediction. We'll see how, how the science comes down. But I know there are people who've been eating strict carnivore diets for over a decade. Which means not a not one gram of fire. Or right? And and they haven't died. And I don't know about their poop habits, but I suppose that they're happy with them, right? And I know I know that on my three-month carnival experiment, I, I had maybe one or two grams of carbs a day for three months, and I had no trouble with anything going in or anything coming out, okay? And so I think that we're going to find that the at least a large part of the fiber thing was me. It was just one of those things we were told, and it sounded good, so we all just believed it. That's what I, and I, I could be wrong, we'll see, in coming years.
4: Yeah, in my clinic teaching and then reinforcement, you know, almost every time in a monthly follow-up clinic, I explain that how often you go to the bathroom doesn't matter. Uh, uh, a lot of people confuse not going every day with constipation, and they get upset about it. No, 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 that, that's um, a brain thing. So it doesn't matter how often you go to the bathroom. However, if you have hard stools or hard pad stools, that's constipation. In my experience, that eliminates 80% of the, of the complaints because, oh, well, that's not my problem. So how often do you... One thing fiber is good for is having regularity, and that's, I think, why it sells so well. The science does not support adding fiber, and I think the best way to fix an unhealthy microbiome is to stop eating carbs. Yeah. And and right now you're, you're getting the pressure to take uh, uh, biotic... You know, probiotics Probiotic. Probiotic, that's right. Uh, to fix the carbs that you eat, and you know, if you really step back, that's come from research in carb eaters. And now you're assuming you need to take all the unhealthy, fix the unhealthy things that eating carbs. Oh, you've already stopped eating the carbs. So fix the microbiome by stop eating
11: carbs. Yeah, I'm not a big fiber fan myself. I think it's totally overblown. I think it's not. Yeah, and it's really not that crucial. Um, The only thing fiber has ever really been proven to do is increase the frequency of bowel movements you have per day, and I'm not really sure if that's a good thing at all. Um, So it's like, yeah. Uh, Also, the microbiome, we really don't understand that. It's probably the cardio, not the horse, and I'm really not that worried about it.
10: Question. Yeah. The probiotics are only for carbs? (laughs)
7: From a a nurse's point of view and and the people that I interact with on my Facebook page I encourage them to make sure that you have enough salt because for every gram of carbs you eat you retain 4 grams of water so if you have dropped your carbohydrate dramatically you're going to be flushing out especially initially. So without salt to hold on to the water that you do drink, it's just going to keep flushing out. And for, for anybody that's ever had a colonoscopy and you've had to drink that nasty stuff, that's a hypertonic solution typically, which means very salty. And it causes a lot of water to come into the gut and then you clean out. So making sure you have enough salt, enough magnesium, milk of mag, mother's friend, you know, little blue, blue bottle. That's milk of magnesia, ladies and gentlemen. Phillips, you, know, you guys remember them? Oh, okay. So, so, that and uh, so those two things typically um, help them with their regularities. But it, I agree. If they're little rabbit pellets, you're const- you know, or it's hard to pass the stool, you're constipated. Having a bowel movement every single day, not,
11: not so much.
4: I think what we're trying to say is that we're skeptical about the need to take probiotics based on the level of science that there is. And I was trying to go a little further to say, well, even if there was science, it's done in carb eaters. And so it may not even apply to you if you're not a carb eater.
5: I think that and I predict that the microbiome in in our gut bacteria and our gut viruses and and gut fungi is going to be a hugely important thing in medical science, Just my personal opinion. But at the same time, right now, we don't know a damn thing about it. We literally don't know anything about it. It's like we know more about space than we do about the ocean. It's kind of the same thing. We know more about, you know, Livitor than we know about our gut bacteria. And I think that's terrible. And I think there needs to be a ton of research done on it. And I think there will be amazing discoveries from the gut biome. But currently, will taking a probiotic help you, Maybe maybe
8: I'm just going to ask the panel if it's okay. Uh, is it true that human beings can actually survive without a colon? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Do they have to take anything special or can they just eat a low-residue diet like no, me? No, 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 no. <laughs> 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 so that's all my, my question. So I think, well then, what about this microbiome? I don't
5: know. Valid point, yeah. Uh, valid point, I think that was a loaded question.
6: Yeah. <laughs> we have five minutes. Um, you had a question you have, Ask you. asked a good question. Did I get answered? I don't think so. I found Dr. Ted's presentation and review of the, the literature really compelling. And then, well, and then I listened to all of the colleagues up here, and none of them seemed to support your thesis. So well. And. Um, Which they
2: tell us, so in case anybody missed it, what Well, decisions?
6: about the, the protein, and you can't eat too much protein, basically. Was that what you were saying? Sort of? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> basically, the question I want to ask is because I didn't see as much compelling evidence to the contrary. So I'd just like to ask you and your colleagues who's right? Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. What about. <laughs>
11: You mean like higher versus lower protein, which is better?
6: Well, we had that discussion, but I didn't come away any clearer. But yet what I thought I heard you saying was eat as much protein as you want. And the uh, uh, gluconeogenesis thing wasn't such a big issue as we all thought it was. and
11: that kind So the reality is <laughs> not a single doctor up here has ever diagnose somebody with eating too much protein. Like, you'll literally not find any doctors diagnosing anyone eating too much protein. Nobody is eating too much protein. Please show me someone who's eating too much protein. This isn't even really a thing. I,
12: think there's I have been told I've eaten too much protein. Based before on I what? Said, I, I said, was, but, <laughs> uh,
6: My react level was, uh, was 1.8 has
11: and it went up to 2.0, <laughs> and my, I haven't seen my doctor yet, he hasn't since Spotify, but I know he doesn't mean i about my blood, but I made it my book. so that should be, exactly about well, oh, yeah. See, that's not, I mean, I'm not convinced that it's based, unless yeah. you have primary glomerular disease, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> probably, which means you don't, don't have to yeah. so we put that the classification, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. Uh, what's causing my reaction. Oh, well, I mean, there's a million factors. It's usually high blood pressure or diabetes. That's the majority of chronic kidney types. That's what's going to Yeah. 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 And, and protein restriction has never been shown to be of any benefit in people with chronic kidney disease from high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes ever. at all. Zero and nine. So your doctor is not, uh, uh, not basing that on any real evidence. Did the creatinine go up after you did keto? One point eight to so two point what, <laughs> what would you tell them? What do you mean? I mean up? Oh well. Okay. It the keto. So the 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 sad <laughs> truth is, I've watched people's A one Cs go up dramatically on strict ketogenic diets. If you are eating a strict ketogenic diet and you overeat fat. You will gain weight. You will raise your fasting insulin level. You will raise your glucose. You'll raise your A1C. If you're a type two diabetic and you really want to see a high blood sugar. i losing weight. I was three oh five
5: when I first started keto, and now
11: i Uh yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be able to explain it. I have we have to know your A1C and your muscle mass, which makes can go up.
4: We
6: really can not give individual advice
4: But but if there were a patient who came to me Who their creatinine level went up just a little bit Their A1C went up just a little bit I would reassure them it's not the diet change Even though all of your other doctors are telling you that it's the protein There's no evidence that protein damages the kidneys I just follow, I have people who have renal transplants who come to me who have chronic renal failure, and I just follow those levels, BUN and creatinine. And there is a certain fluctuation. I'd say 1.8. If you go back in time, you probably had 1.8 to 2, or there's a fluctuation in creatinine because it's not a great measure. And so often we're just reassuring people because there's variability in that measure. Exactly right. And so you guys know I'm big on
5: take-home messages, right? And so I think Ted made a compelling case for high protein. And then some of the rest of us made somewhat compelling cases for, for high fat and lower protein. But my take home message for you is, is whether you follow Ted or whether you follow somebody else up here, you still want. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because yeah. like like for my friend back here with, with the creatinine thing, uh, Dr. Westman's exactly right. Your creatinine's gonna fluctuate a little with hydration status, with all these different things. The thing that I would tell you to avoid like the boogeyman under the bed is carbs because your diabetes is what's going to destroy your kidneys and leave you on on dialysis. That's that's what's going to cause that. African Americans are so susceptible to to A one C elevations, and that you know then your insulin's up, then you're going to have high blood pressure, and you you're, you you know, you're a black guy with high blood pressure and diabetes. That equals dialysis. You and you have you have an uncle or a grandma or somebody. Who's on dialysis or what? I mean, you had to have it. It's just it's so prevalent in the African-American community, it's atrocious. But you have to understand, what's going to destroy your kidneys is not protein. It's, it's, it's simple sugar. It's, it's sugar, starches, simple carbs, that kind of stuff. That's what's going to destroy. And I've seen, and I actually agree with Jason Fung on this, even with chronic kidney disease stage 1, 2, and even 3, I don't think there's a shred of evidence. That shows that a, a protein in any that like limiting your protein helps that in any way. But limiting carbs, oh yeah, but you better be doing it. what about the general protein recommendation?
4: about that? You comment on well, Go first. the general protein recommendation. Okay, now you're doing keto. Yeah. And I heard mm-hmm. talks, uh, there was a classic one with Mike Eads and Ron Rosedale. Yep. It was at a medical conference where they said, okay, now that you agree, not having carbs is a good thing. Do we do higher protein? Do we do higher fat? And as of this talk was probably six years ago, no one really knew. And I don't know that there's any great data, research level data to advise. I, I think we're all
5: feeling around in the dark because it's a good th- good thing anytime everything's back on the table, but it's also a bad thing because we now we don't know anything, right? But I think that we're, we're all on the right track, and I think it probably depends partly on your ancestral DNA. Uh, my wife, Misha, has got a lot of Spanish and a lot of equatorial DNA, and she does much better on a veggie-heavy ketogenic diet, where I have a, a lot of Nordic descent and a lot of Neanderthal. Some people really <laughs> love it when I say that. I don't know why. <laughs> But, but I do much better on a very fatty, meat-heavy carnivore diet. And so I think that you it's, it's individual. Again, we're back to that again. You get to dial up and play with your protein, your fat, and your and your good quality carbs until you find where you feel best. Unless you've got predisposing risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, and family history, then you've got to be scared to death of carbs, I think. Yeah, I, think
3: I think overall, this, this question of protein, we've kind of blown out of proportion. What else do? We're focusing on the micro details instead of looking at the bigger picture, which everybody here is basically saying the same thing.
5: Yeah, yeah.
12: it's a win either way.
5: You go with Ted, you win.
12: You go with
1: Master, you win.
12: <laughs> so yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the difference is not that huge. We're all saying, you know, carb or no carb, probably, and uh, you know, whether it's seventy percent fat or eighty percent fat. You know, either way, it might work fine. It's not that different.
8: Uh, way back when there was an explorer, I think his name was Stephenson, Stith- uh, Stifters. uh, yes, the yes. twenty. And, uh, yeah, and uh, the paper that I read said basically uh, they didn't give him fat, they just gave him protein. And no. he started feeling bad for a while until they gave him brain and bone marrow and he started perking up. Yes, initially in the study, that is what it's yeah. said. Yeah. 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 So, so it's really interesting. I think that people are going to self-regulate. If you start feeling bad you'll start eating differently. Is that it? Okay,
1: I think we're done. Thank you so much.
9: Disc of Light.